Let's all bow before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you. We thank you for the blessings of the day. We thank you for all that you've done. We pray that your blessings would be upon this ministry and those here. We thank you once more for yesterday's immersions. Uh, seven baptisms uh, was just a blessing to witness. We thank you for those here, this, uh, especially those who've traveled afar to be here. Father, we give you praise and, and honor, and we we recognize that all good things are from you, and that there is nothing beyond you, and certainly nothing beyond you that we have attained on our own. So we pray that your continuous blessings would be upon this ministry, upon those here, and that we would serve you always on this very special day and for the remainder of our days. And in Yahshua's beloved name, hallelujah. hallelujah. I'd like to wish everybody, uh, I guess I can say Sabbath greetings. It's not technically weekly Sabbath, but it is a Sabbath nonetheless. I'd like to welcome everyone, say a very uh, happy uh, Kag HaMatzo. That's the uh, message today, Feast of the Unleavened or Feast of Unleavened Bread. You know, as we know from the word, this is one of the most important feasts throughout the year. And over the years, we've tried to put more emphasis on this feast. You know, years ago, we would do the high days, and that was about it. You know, we would come together and observe the high days, but nothing really between. And I think just in some ways, this is just as important as a feast of tabernacles in the fall. This is a big one in the spring, and then we have the one in the fall. Very important feast. You know, it's rich in meaning, rich in symbolism, and also rich in prophetic importance, I believe. You know, during this seven-day feast, we know that we're to remove leavening from our homes. Now, of course, there's more to it than simply removing the leavening. This means something. You know, leavening has many different meanings, and that's going to be a big part of my message today, exploring the meaning of leavening, what it represents, and why we're to do this. In fact, as um, coming to services today, my youngest daughter asked, you know, why do we remove the leavening note? She, know, she knows we should, but wasn't quite sure why, besides the word saying we should remove the leavening. So maybe I'll cover that just a little bit. Now, this day is also, again, rich prophetically. We know that based on the word. It was during this time that our Savior, Yahshua the Messiah, was resurrected from the grave. And that's really the meaning. So Passover, of course, that's when he died. And then we have this feast, which represents his resurrection. You know, when this happened, you know, we believe that Yahshua fulfilled the wave sheaf. And that's one reason why I understand the wave sheaf and the agriculture and everything that really occurred during this time is so important because it all has, again, prophetic importance, prophetic insight. You know, Paul explains in Romans 6, I'm not going to turn there, but he says and expounds, those who are immersed into Yahshua's name, it says here that we're going to share in the likeness of also his resurrection. So you see, our resurrection is predicated upon his resurrection. If Yahshua was never resurrected, we would have no hope today for the resurrection. So it's not only about his death, which again occurred during Passover, but also the resurrection, which is what this feast symbolizes. It's why it's important, because it was during this feast, and I'm sure Elder Allen will be talking more about that next, uh, or this uh, coming uh, next high day. And that would be the wave sheaf, by the way, because it's Sunday. It's not today, by the way, it's Monday. So the wave sheaf was offered on the Sunday during Love and Bread, which is next Sunday. So, again, today I want to focus more on the command, you know, what the Word says about this time, and also the meaning of leavening, because, again, we're to remove the leavening, and people wonder, why are we removing leavening? You know, why not something else? So, you know, leavening has a lot of meanings, and I will say, because the instances today we're going to see of leavening are negative, are negative, but I will say not all examples of leavening are negative, 
although we're not going to look at the positive examples of leavening because we're to remove leavening because of the negative attributes. But just as a side note, it's not all negative. There are some positive things about leavening. I'll mention just one real quickly in passing. What were the two loaves made from during Pentecost? Where they had leavening within those loaves. So leavening is not all bad. Yahweh would never command a bad substance, if you will, within the within those two loaves, if leavening was bad. But it does represent some bad things, as we'll see through the, through the word. It is multifaceted, many different meanings. And today we're going to focus really on what it represents based on this feast. So I'd like to begin with the command. What is it? What does Yahweh say in the word? Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23 is, as we all know, is a summary of really all the feast days. And 6 through 8 focuses on this feast. It says, On the 15th day of the same month is a feast of unleavened bread unto Yahweh. Seven days, it says, you must eat unleavened bread. So notice it doesn't say here, just for the record, to remove unleavened bread for seven days. It says to eat unleavened bread for seven days. It says, On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work there, and so it's a day of rest. Now, slightly different from the weekly Sabbath, but nonetheless, it is a day of rest. It says, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto Yahweh seven days, and the seventh day is in a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. So again, a day of rest. So we see that this day is when? It says that this day is on the 15th day of Abib. Whereas we know that the Passover is on the 14th day of Abib. So this is a day after the Passover. For those who may be new, and most of you know this, but I'm going to just spend a few moments just talking about it anyway. Reviews are always good, right? So how do we determine the timing of this feast? How do we know when to begin Abib? How do we know when to begin this month? How do we know when to begin this, this feast? Well, we know Deuteronomy 16.1, it, it commands her, it says to observe the month of Abib. To observe the month of Abib. Now this is really important. Shamar Kodesh are two key words there. Shamar is to look for. Actually, Shamar really means to guard. But what do you do when you guard? You look, you look at what you're guarding. In fact, one of the definitions of Shamar is to guard is to look for. So in Deuteronomy 16, verse 1, it says that we're to look for, we're to observe the month Kodesh. Month Kodesh is new moon. So we're to watch for the new moon. And then it says of Abib. And Abib is Hebrew, and it simply refers to young years of grain, refers to the agriculture. Now, based on Exodus uh, 9, verse 31, we know that the grain that Scripture is speaking about is barley. Now, in that passage, we find that it, it mentions, uh, references the grain and the barley, and it says it was in the ear. Now, the word ear in the Hebrew is Abib. So we know that during the month of Passover, during Abib, that the barley was in Abib. And Abib is a state of barley, by the way. Abib basically refers to the soft dough stage and later. So the soft dough stage is basically what you can parch or roast. And that was one of the qualifications of the leaf sheath that it had to be roasted. And that's during this feast. This feast, again, symbolizes a wave sheath for the, the uh, barley harvest, which, again, Yahshua typified through his own resurrection. And we know, as we see in the word, that uh, 50 days later from the wave sheaf, we have Pentecost. So here we are on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Kaikamatsot. Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we know, again, it's seven days in duration. We also know, again, that it marks the barley harvest, the first grain harvest of the year. 
Now, Pentecost represents what harvest? Pentecost represents wheat harvest. Now, Israel's kind of um, distorted the cycle. Say so they plant the wheat a little bit different today, so you have both growing up today by the same time. But ancient times, you'd have the wheat harvest, and then, or the barley harvest, and then you have the wheat harvest later during Pentecost. Now, we find here something else about this feast. We see that the first and seventh days are holy convocations. Holy convocations. What does this mean? Well, the term Hebrew holy, uh, holy convocation comes from the Hebrew Kodesh Mikra. And Kodesh Mikra basically means sacred or set apart gathering or meeting. So Yahweh commands during this time that we come together to worship him, especially on this first and last day as we find, because these are holy convocations. Now on these days, we're to rest. We also know that we're to abstain from commerce. We see that in Nehemiah 10, verse 31, just for the record. But really, most importantly, it's a time to worship Yahweh, a time to come and to reflect and to understand the lessons that he has within his word. Now, we also see here, I kind of made reference to this as I was reading through it. It says that we're to eat unleavened bread for seven days. You know, some people put a lot of emphasis on the removal of the leavening. We should be removing the leavening. But Scripture doesn't say just to remove the leavening. Scripture also says that we're to eat unleavened bread for seven days. And there's a reason why this is. There's a reason why we're to eat unleavened bread and not simply just remove the leavening. They both have symbolism. They both have meaning. And I'm going to get into that as we go through this message. But again, I just want to point out for now that we're to not only remove the leavening, but also eat unleavened bread for all seven days of this feast. That's why we try to make sure that we have some leavening during most meals. I think I have leavening probably every meal there is. And it's kind of hard to have a bread substitute. I'm a big bread eater. So uh, during this day, we have to get creative with the unleavened bread. So I want to turn to uh, Exodus 12, verse 15. And here we find more detailed instruction on the leavening and the unleavened and why and, and how we're to remove it. So Exodus 12, verse 15, it says, Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day that soul shall be cut off from Israel. So during these seven days, again, we find here that we're to eat unleavened bread, but also we're to remove the leavening. You know, Scripture says that anyone who eats leavened bread during this time is cut off. What other feasts do we find that warning with? That if we don't do it, we're cut off. Or the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement says the same thing, that if we do any work, that if we don't afflict our souls during that time, that we're cut off as his people. We see the same thing. So it's a pretty serious thing here that we, that we abstain from leavening during this time. You know, it's interesting here that Yahweh first again commands that we eat unleavened bread, then commands that we abstain from the leavening. Again, I think there's a reason why. I think there's, there's a reason why Yahweh here commands and puts the emphasis first on eating the unleavened bread. Even though both are important, he seems to put more emphasis on the first. Now, once we uh, fully understand the symbolism between these two items, I think we're going to understand why he does this. Why he begins by saying to remove or to eat the unleavened and then to remove the leavening. 
But let's consider some of the Hebrew we have within this passage. i got three slides here defining some of these key words. So the first one is unleavened bread. What is unleavened bread? The Hebrew is matzah. It's 4682 in Strong's. And uh, Strong says specifically an unfermented cake or loaf or the festival of Passover because no leaven was used uh, or then used. So again, it specifically refers to something that is unfermented cake or loaf. So bread without leavening is what unleavened bread is. So as I guess it's kind of a kind of obvious. Brian Driver Briggs defines this as unleavened bread or cake without leaven or yeast. So that's unleavened bread is simply bread made without yeast or some other leavening product. So leaven, seor in the Hebrew, and seor means yeast cake, a swelling by fermentation, that's Strong's. So again, it's this concept of fermentation, this concept of leavening, this concept of puffing something up through the process of leavening through yeast or whatever form we might may be using. The Branch River Briggs also says leaven or yeast, so that's how it defines a word seor. Now, leavened bread is from kamates. So this is probably the most important word, I think, of all three, really, in some ways, kamates. So how does scripture define kamates? Where kamates, according to Strong's, is it means to ferment, leaven or leavened bread. So that's kamates. Again, anything that is bread that is fermented, something that is bread or grain that is fermented. Brian Trevor and Briggs, Hebrew lexicon, says a thing leavened or leavened. So those are the three words, matzah, seor, and kamates. Again, matzah is unleavened. Seor and kamates is leavened or leavening. And uh, leavened bread, as we find within the word. So again, through the Hebrew here, we find the word to eat unleavened bread and remove leavening during this time. So why is this important? Why is it important that we remove the leavening, remove this kamates from our homes, from our properties? You know, that's what scripture says, by the way, to remove it from our borders. It's not enough to simply remove it from our homes or to remove it from our borders or to remove it from, from our properties. I'd first like to re- review the meaning of leavening from a symbolic standpoint. What does it represent? You know, it's interesting. You would think that we would find these meanings as symbolism in the Old Testament. But to really understand the meaning of leavening, we have to go to the new. I don't know about you, but I find that kind of intriguing. I would think that we would go to the Decalogue or the Torah or the Old Testament, the Tanakh. But we have to go to the New Testament to understand the meaning of leavening. Yahshua and Paul, really, but Yahshua mostly, speaks about the meaning of leavening. So here's a first example here, Matthew 16, 6 through 8, and also verse 12. It says, When Yahshua said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Is it because we have taken no bread? You know, there are so many examples where Yahshua said things and the apostles, they simply did not understand. And uh, some people think the apostles had this great insight during Yahshua's ministry. They, for the most part, did not have a clue. Yahshua had to explain every step of the way. Now, after Yahshua's uh, death and resurrection, and after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Peter and the other apostles really understood, and they had great insight. But here we see that they were kind of still wondering, you know, what is he, what is he referring to here? 
says, because we have brought no bread, which when Yahshua perceived, he said unto them, oh, you have little faith. Why reason you among yourselves? Because you have brought no bread. Then understood they how they, that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. So Yahshua here tells his disciples to, to beware of this leavening of the scribes and Pharisees. And, and we see here that he's referring, what? He's referring to this doctrine, to what they believe, to uh, their belief system. The word beware is from the Greek proskio, means to pay attention or to be cautious. So Yahshua here, he's conveying to the disciples and by extension to you and I, that we're to be cautious when it comes to doctrine, to a belief system, to, to uh, dogma in so many ways. He was telling them to be cautious of the doctrine of the scribes and Pharisees. You know, as believers, we all have this responsibility. You know, I believe that this is one of the most important responsibilities we have as believers in Yahweh, to be attentive, to be cautious, to be aware, to be circumspect with what we believe based on what the word says. You know, there's too many people who simply take the word of their minister. We don't do that here, by the way. We encourage you to investigate, to check us out. If you find something that we have said wrong, in fact, I've said something wrong in my last quiz. I said that Moses wasn't in, in a revelation. I knew he was. I even looked. Could not find it in Strong's. So I said, yeah, I must be wrong. Or anyway, don't take in. You, you have to study. You have to prove. Scripture says to prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. So that's an obligation we have as believers to hold fast and to and to uh, search out what Scripture says. We're to prove what we believe, and if those beliefs are right, we're to hold fast to those. But if not, we're to remove them. We're to remove them. You know, keep in mind that this includes adding or taking away from the Word. I'm almost just as adamant when it comes to adding to the Word versus taking away. You know, so many people are concerned about the taking away, or we don't want to take away the Sabbath, and we don't. But we don't want to add to the word like the Pharisees did of old. You know, they added all these rules and regulations, and, and uh, Joshua never chastised them for removing things. He really chastised them for adding to it, making it harder than what Yahweh really intended. So again, we're not to add or take away from the word. You know, there's no better example of this than the noble Bereans. I mean, they, they really did a great job with this. The Bible says that they searched out the scriptures daily, daily. Now, this was the Apostle Paul. Whether maybe they knew Paul's reputation, maybe they could have just taken Paul's word for it. Maybe they could have told one another, this is what Paul's saying. This is, this is good. You know, there's no reason to study. There's no reason to search this out. But that's not what they did. Scripture says that they proved daily what Paul was saying, what Paul was conveying to the people in Berea. Again, this is one of the most important principles for a believer. You know, just as we're to remove leavening from our homes during this feast, we're to remove those beliefs that don't align with Scripture, that might offend our Father in heaven. You know, Yahweh takes worship so seriously. And I know some people are kind of flippant about that. They just, you know, it doesn't matter how we worship, what we do, when we do. Well, Yahweh says it does matter. 
We're to worship as Yahweh says within his word. It does matter. You know, think about how this would change this nation. If every church in this nation would take this approach. If they would ask, you know, am I doing what the Bible says to do? Am I worshiping the way Yahweh wants me to worship? Am I following my creator as he would wish? And really dig in to really understand whether they were in compliance to Scripture. Again, think about how this would change. Think about the vast majority of tradition that would change overnight. You know, because the reality is it's not hard to prove so many of these things. That's not the issue. You know, people say, why don't you do Christmas? You know, sometimes I want to say, why don't you read your encyclopedia? (laughs) It's not real hard. It's very, very simple. And that's true for the Sabbath. That's true for Yahweh's name. That's true for most of what we believe. Prove it. You know, I feel very strongly, and I can stand in boldness, knowing that what we do is based on Scripture. Because we really desire to prove what we believe. You know, this ministry began with the concept of to strip away all the politics, to strip away all the the baggage, and to simply strive to follow Yahweh's word. And I don't know how many of you know, many of you know this, but, you know, we began worshiping in Alan's home. And eventually we kind of moved also in my home, and we met in homes for many, many years, and eventually we built this building here, and eventually we added here, and eventually we added there, and eventually we added there, and and it's grown over the years. But, you know, from the very beginning, the reason we're not called an assembly is because we had no intention to have an assembly. The reason we're called a ministry is because our focus was and is now to simply preach the word and not to be caught up in politics or opinions or convenience, but to simply preach the word. And that's what we should all do. And again, think about how this nation would change. Think about how the landscape of churches would change. You know, many try to justify the uh, history of Easter and Christmas and most of the church holidays we find. But there's no justifying these things. And again, just pull out the encyclopedia, pull out the dictionary, you know, pull out anything, really. I'm going to share just uh, for Easter, since we're uh, just right around the corner, I believe it's next Sunday. I really don't keep close tabs on Easter, I have no reason to, but I believe it's uh, next Sunday. So um, here's three uh, references, just in case, well, I'm sure everybody here knows some preaching to the choir here for just a few minutes. So the New Unger's Bible Dictionary says this about Easter. It says, the word Easter is of Saxon origin. Estra, the goddess of spring, in whose honor sacrifices were offered about Passover time each year. So you know, there, there's a reason why it happens about this time, because the pagans were also worshiping in the spring, springtime. It says by the 8th century. Notice that, by the way, by the 8th century. So this was not a very quick Adoption. It was not a very quick change, but it says by the 8th century, Anglo-Saxons had adopted the name to designate the celebration of Christ's or the Messiah's resurrection. By the 8th century, so this was not a very quick, this was 800 years after. So, so many, and, and that's true for so many of these other traditions. It was not a very quick change, but it did happen over time. So the Nilsons Illustrated Bible Dictionary says this, Easter was originally a pagan festival honoring Ostre, a Teutonic Germanic goddess of light and spring at the time of the vernal equinox. The day in the spring, the, the day in, in the spring when the sun crosses the equator and the day and night are of equal length. Sacrifices were offered in her honor. 
As early as the 8th century, the name was used to designate the annual Christian celebration of the resurrection, I'll say, of Messiah. So again, we see this 8th century. So this was somewhere around, around the time frame when Easter, this term, was applied to the Messiah's resurrection. Tell me, where does it say that we're to, we're to worship his resurrection? Where does it say that? Well, I don't, I don't know of any passage in Scripture that says we're to worship his resurrection. Now, I do know in Scripture where it says that we're to worship his death, that we're to observe his death, that we're to remember his death, but not his resurrection. Now, obviously, his resurrection is very important, but again, there's nothing in Scripture that says we're to observe his resurrection as they do with Easter. Now, one last reference here. This is from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, kind of a mouthful. It's a really good reference, though. It says the English word comes from the Anglo-Saxon estri, or estra, a Teutonic goddess in whom sacrifice was offered in April. So the name was transferred to the Paschal Feast, or the Passover Feast. The word does not properly occur in Scripture, although the King James Version has it in Acts 2, verse 4, 12, verse 4, where it stands for the Passover, as it is rightly rendered in the Revised Version, both British and American. There is no trace of Easter celebration in the New Testament, though some would see a imitation of it in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. The Jewish Christians in the early church continued to celebrate the Passover regarding Messiah's true Passover or Paschal Lamb. So here's just some references on Passover again, if on Easter, I should say. If church would just simply open up their books, you know, if a minister would simply go to a shelf and start reading about Easter, he would realize real soon or real quickly that this day is not something we should be doing. And the reality is most know this. I would say the vast majority of ministers know this. This is not unknown, but they will simply justify it. They will say tradition. Or, you know, tradition isn't always a bad thing, but tradition isn't always a good thing. And I'll tell you when tradition is not a good thing. Tradition is not a good thing when we begin to compromise and when we begin to change Yahweh's word. That's when tradition is a bad thing. When we use tradition to change and, 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 and modify what Yahweh says within his truth, that is a bad thing. So we see here that Easter was in honor of the Teutonic goddess of spring. Now, just real quickly, I want to point out that this occurred during the vernal equinox, or was reckoned based on the vernal equinox. The vernal equinox was used by uh, many, many pagans throughout the um, years, and that's one reason why we don't use it here to, to mark Abib and the Passover and this feast. Now, again, Easter is not alone in this paganism. The fact is most of today's holidays, holy days by the church, are of pagan origin, you have Christmas, of course, is a big one. That's so easy to prove. And, and you have Halloween and so many others, Lent, you know, depending on what denomination you are. Now, you would think, knowing this, most Bible believers would be quick to throw out this man-made worship. No, they like their leavening too much. They enjoy their leavening. They enjoy their tradition. It's hard to remove this tradition. Most simply double down, defend what they know is paganism, what they know was adopted and came from pagan roots. You know, nothing separates Yahweh's people, I believe, more than proper worship. It is essential as believers that we worship Yahweh as he defines within his word. You know, it's real, real simple. Either we worship Yahweh as he defines it or we don't. It's real simple. 
You know, it's amazing how man complicates Yahweh's word. I've said that many times over the years. Nobody complicates Yahweh's word better than man. Because man wants to do it his way. He wants to deviate here. He wants to change this. Mostly because it's easier. There's some sort of benefit or advantage. When you understand the early church, most of these changes were because there was some sort of advantage. You know, for instance, much of the Hellenization we find, much of this paganism that we find, it was adopted because they wanted to grow. To grow. They wanted to bring in these pagans. So you know what? Instead of Sol Invictus, or instead of Mithraism, or instead of uh, Saturnalia, um, we're, we're, we observe this time too. We observe this time too as his birth, even though there's no evidence supporting Yahshua's birth in the dead of winter. But again, they wanted growth. And you know, we find the same thing though today. You know, what has been will be again. That's what we find in Ecclesiastes. What has been will be again. And this same, this same desire to compromise for personal benefit we see still today. Where now they put the Starbucks in the church to encourage people to come. And it's more of a social thing. And that's why, you know, I, I want this assembly to be a family. And I like to have fun. And I would like to see everybody have some fun here. But fun should not be the reason we come. Socialization is important, and I believe that we should try to be social. We should try to support one another. But we're not here for the social. We're here to worship Yahweh. We're here to please him. That's why we're here. And that should be the first and foremost reason we're here. You know, like I've shared with many people over the years, our goal is to simply follow the Messiah without man-made tradition, without this dogma that we find. So again, we're to remove the uh, the, the, uh, leaven of the uh, scribes and Pharisees, or the Sadducees, doctrine. Now in Luke 12, verse 1, we find another meaning of leavening. This is kind of a short one here. It says, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, beware you of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is what? which is hypocrisy, he says. So we see here that leavening represents hypocrisy. In the Greek, this word literally refers to an actor or someone who is dishonest. Matthew 23 is known as the seven woes. Within it, Yahshua reprimands the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy. He begins each part by saying this. He says, but woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Nothing drove Yahshua more nuts than these hypocrites. Than these who would say one thing and do another. You know, there are a few things more frustrating to our Father in Heaven than for someone who would do this, a hypocrite. Pretend to be something they're not. You know, when we worship and obey Him, we must do it without duplicity. We must do it without hypocrisy. We must go all the way with it. And we must do it with sincerity. You know, in the book of Galatians, Paul says, Yahweh is not mocked or deceived. I think that's a really valuable lesson for us as believers to understand and to remember. That the one we worship is not deceived, is not mocked. There's nothing we can do to deceive the one we worship. Now, we might be able to deceive our families. We might be able to deceive our friends. We might be able to deceive those in this congregation. But I can assure you, we will not deceive the one we worship. 
We cannot deceive the one we worship. He sees all things. He knows all things. He's all present. If we do something here and we yet do something different at home, he knows. And we're really wasting our time. We're wasting our time. If we're not fully in, if we're not fully engaged with his faith, we are wasting his time. We're wasting our time. We're wasting time if we're not fully engaged, if we're not really fully committed to the walk that we're living now. You know, the measure of a man is not what he does in public, but what he does in private. It's real easy to put a facade on, to stand up here or to whatever, to put a facade on during Sabbath or the high days. But it's hard to do that always. But again, Yahweh is omniscient. There is no secret in him. Everything we do, whether public or private, is known to him. We cannot deceive the one we worship. There's no room for hypocrisy when it comes to worship. You understand that those who pretend to be someone in public but are somebody else in private, again, are only deceiving themselves. They're only deceiving and they're wasting their time. And they're wasting Yahweh's time. And they are offending the one they worship. It's so important that we remove hypocrisy. Yahweh hates hypocrisy. He hates hypocrisy. And this was one of Yahshua's main issues also with the scribes and Pharisees. Remember what Yahshua said in Matthew 23? He says, you know, do what they say, but don't do what they do. I'm kind of paraphrasing there, but do what they say. And one of the reasons he could say that, by the way, is, is when they were reading from the, law, the, the uh, seat of Moses, they were reading from the word. So obviously, if they're reading from the word, we should be doing what the word says. But we're not to do as they say or do as they do. We're not to follow and, and mimic the duplicity of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, the Apostle Paul gives another example of leavening in 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 7 says this, It is reported commonly that there is fornication, fornication among you. And such fornication it is not so much as named among the Gentiles. This was really, really bad. What he's saying there is not even the Gentiles do such horrible things. This is really bad. It says that one should have his mother, his father's wife. His father's wife. Now says, most scholars will say a stepmother, but it doesn't matter. Now listen, it says, and you are puffed up. You are proud. You know, this sounds so much like the world today, doesn't it? You know, we're the oddball because we want to simply follow Scripture. We're the, the homophobe because we simply don't agree with homosexuality. Our father doesn't agree with sodomy. Our father says it's an abomination. But again, we're strange. We're strange. Because again, the world is puffed up because of their acceptance of sin. Paul goes on to say, and have not rather more. That's what we should do as believers, by the way. When we do something wrong, this nation is in a crisis within morality. I think we would all agree with that. I mean, you don't even know what gender you are anymore. It's, it's just nonsense. It's nonsensical. It's just horrible. It's disgusting. It's reprobate. What we should be doing is we should be mourning as a nation, repenting, mourning, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily as absent in body but present in spirit. Basically he's just saying I'm not, I'm not there. But this is so horrible. 
I don't have to be there. This is so horrible. I can make the judgment where I'm at. He says, I've judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. In the name of the master, Yashra Messiah, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our master, Yashra Messiah, to deliver such and wand unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved in the day of the master, Yashra. So see why, by the way, why Paul's saying to deliver this person to Satan so that, so that he might be saved in the end. You know, that's why we do things like this. Not, not to cast them away forever, but to give them an opportunity to repent and to see what they've done wrong. It says, their glory is not good. Do you know not, uh, do you know not that a little, little leaven leavens a whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened, unleavened. For even Messiah Passover sacrificed for us. So here we find Paul addressing a specific sin that was plaguing this assembly. They were proud of it. They were allowing it. They were puffed up about it, as we find. We see here that a man within the assembly was guilty of committing immorality with more than likely his stepmother, or maybe his mother. Most will say stepmother. What was Paul's verdict here? What did Paul say? What was the conclusion where he told this assembly to remove this man from fellowship and give him over to Satan? And again, this was done for the purpose of hoping that he would repent, hoping that he would come to his senses, hoping that he would realize what he was doing and that he would come back and he would repent and he would be back in the fold. That was the reason. Not so that he could be cast away forever. Now in this passage, we find Paul referring to sin. And Paul says here that a little leaven leavens a whole lump. You know, for me, this is a real important passage, really important passage for this feast. We see here the action of leavening, specifically as it relates to sin, how, the, how sin impacts. And we see here that leavening grows and expands. So when we have leavening, when we see the acceptance of leavening, it grows and becomes worse. And it infiltrates whatever it is, you know, whether it's a family or an assembly. You know, as believers, we should never do this. We must remove sin from our lives, iniquity from our lives. We must never allow this to be habitual, to be something commonplace to accept sin. You know, this is really the danger point, I believe, with sin. Sin becomes dangerous when we are puffed up about it, when we accept it, when we see nothing wrong with it. And there's people in those situations where they're doing things they should not be doing. In the beginning, they realized what they, do, what they were doing was wrong. But as time went on, they rationalized the sin. And we can do the same thing as believers. We can rationalize sin. We can rationalize maybe things we watch or things we listen to or certain behavior or maybe even using certain substances and how Yahweh would be pleased or would honor this behavior or this thing we're doing. No, what happens is like leavening, it grows and permeates and becomes worse. 
You know, my 20-plus years in the ministry, the acceptance of sin is a main reason why assemblies divide or implode, I believe. I've seen many examples of this over the years, and that's why I'm so adamant, I know Elder Allen is as well, that we need to remain true to the word. And I'm one to nip things in the bud pretty quickly. I'm not one to let things linger, especially if it's something serious. You can go somewhere else, but you're not going to stay here. Not if it's something serious. If you can't get your life in order and you're bringing in some sort of sin, you're going to go. Because scripture says that we have to remain pure. Because what happens is, if you allow sin, again, it it grows like leavening and it permeates. This is especially true for those in leadership positions. And I've seen assemblies, some issue. And, you know, a lot of times it's a moral issue, I've noticed. It's a moral issue. But they don't want to deal with it. Dealing with problems is one of the hardest things. I've been doing this for 20-plus years, and I can tell you it's, it's easier, but it's still not easy. I don't think it's ever going to be easy, especially those I love and care for. It's never easy to deal with problems and issues, but that's just something that you have to do as a minister. You have to deal with issues. You have to deal with problems. But a lot of ministers, like a lot of managers, I've worked in the business world for many years, and one of the things I've seen about managers is they, too, often don't like to deal with issues. I don't quite understand why a person would be a manager if they don't want to deal with issues. But it's amazing how many managers I've worked with or know, they just refuse to deal with issues. I guess they believe that the issue is going to go away. And let me tell you, most often issues just don't go away. We have to deal with issues. But the same, same thing's true for ministers. I've known ministers. They just refuse to deal with issues. You know, I've known some ministers, they just can't say the word no. I had one minister, he was coming here, and another man was going to speak here, and we were just hosting the event. And he asked me, what do you think? And, uh, of course, I told him I, I didn't really think he should, and, and uh, he was glad to hear that because I don't think he was willing to say that. I just don't think was, he was willing to say, no, you, you, you shouldn't speak. But as ministers, we have to uh, do that. You know, what happens, though, is we, we try to sweep it under the rug like leavening, you know, you just kind of just move it into the corner. But inevitably, somehow that sin resurrects itself and becomes an issue down the road. And it becomes a bigger issue because if you would have dealt with that issue when it happened, it would not have been the issue that it is now. But because you let that issue go and you prolong the issue, the issue became worse because sin is like leavening. It grows and it permeates. So again, as believers, we should remove leavening because again it causes damage and that's not only true for an assembly by the way that's true for any relationship i believe it's true for marriage it's true for friendships it's true for work you know as a manager at work with a state i mean i have to again deal with issues deal with personnel issues and um, it's something you just have to deal with and if you don't again as we find here it permeates it grows it expands it becomes worse I want to now transition to the meaning of leaven. What does leavened bread symbolize? So let's look at 1 Corinthians 5, verse 8. Paul here is speaking about the unleavened bread. He says, therefore, let us remove or, or let us keep the feast. Let's not remove. We're going to keep the feast. Not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of what? Of sincerity and truth of sincerity and truth. So we see here that leavening symbolizes malice and wickedness. Now the Greek here for malice is kakia. Strong's defines this word as a form of depravity. 
a form of depravity. So that's what it's referring to here where it says malice is depravity. Other words for depravity includes immorality, wickedness, corruption of some sort. So during this time, we're to purge our homes. We're to purge our homes of leavening, but we're also to purge us from our lives, including false beliefs, hypocrisy, acceptance of sin, and as we find here, malice and wickedness. These things should go. This is why this feast is so important. You know, think about the consequence. Think about the ramifications. Think about the gravity of what we're doing during this time. If we really do it right, and I know some of us, we get sort of caught up and we just go through the motion and we don't think about what this time represents or why we're doing it. But if we would really reflect upon why we're doing this and what this feast represents and what we should be doing during this time, we're going to realize that this is a very, very important time because during this time we should be reflecting, we should be looking, we should be evaluating, we should be investigating. Is our lives to what, uh, what we believe? Is it in line with Scripture? Is it in line with Scripture? And if not, what, what should we be doing? Just like the leavening, we should be removing it. We should be removing it. Just as we remove the leavening from our homes, we should be removing these things from our lives if they do not conform to the word of our Father in heaven. Now, in addition to removing the leavening, we are also commanded to do what? We're commanded to eat unleavened bread for seven days. So in the beginning, I ask, why are we commanded to eat unleavened bread for seven days? Does Yahweh just want us to get our healthy supply of matzah for the year during these seven days? I'm not, I'm, now, I don't eat the, often the, the matzah from the store. My wife prepares some pretty good matzah. And so does my daughter, by the way. She prepared some matzah this uh, year, and really good. So, yeah, I go for the good matzah, not, the, uh, not for the box matzah. But it says that we're to eat matzah, we're to eat this unleavened bread for seven days. Why is this? Well, it's because of what it represents. It represents, again, as we see here, sincerity and truth. So again, think about this, what it symbolizes, what it, what it means. So as believers, when we are removing these things and, and eating these other things, we should be thinking, are we removing the sin from our lives? Are we removing those things that offend our Father in heaven? Are we removing that which may not conform to his word? And are we taking in and living by the sincerity and truth that, we, that he expects, that he wants? This is why... These things are so important. It's not just about physical leavening or leavened bread. It's really what these items represent, why they're so important. Now, in the Greek, the word sincerity refers to purity or holiness. Holiness is a very important concept to our Father in heaven. Yahweh says what? He says, I am holy. You, you therefore, shall be holy. You know, the same holiness, the same righteousness, the same standard that Yahweh applies, we should be striving to attain now, how do we achieve this holiness or purity? I believe we find one answer in John chapter 4, verse 23. John 4, 23 through 24 says, But the hour comes and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. Yahweh is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So again, Yahshua tells here us to worship him. How? In spirit and truth. How do we do this? You know, I believe we do this by seeking out the spiritual things of his word. You know, our Father's word is, is multifaceted. And this feast, I believe, is a great example of this. 
not only are, again, we, we should be removing the physical leavening, but we were to um, understand what leavening represents and we're to remove that from our lives. This is, this is how we serve him in spirit. We're, we're not to only understand the letter of the word. You know, there's some people out there, they go through the motion, they go through the mechanics of what Yahweh's word says, but they never really understand the purpose. They never understand the intent. They never understand this is where this is bringing us. This is, this is how this is changing and this is how this is transforming us. They never really think about the spiritual implications. We are to walk in the spirit and truth. And I believe one of the ways we do this is we apply Yahweh's word spiritually. And when we apply this to spiritually, we understand why it's so important and what we should be doing. Again, if we're simply going through the mechanics of making that unleavened bread and making sure that we've removed the leavening, we've missed the mark. Because we should be looking deeper than this. You know, we also do this, I believe, by following Yahshua's example. Not only did our Savior obey the word, but he also understood the intent and lessons behind it. And that's why he could expound upon the word so eloquently during his ministry. He understood it because he was there. He understood his father. Him and his father says are one. Not one in person, but one in mind and goal. Everything Yahweh knows, Yahshua knows, or I shouldn't quite say that. Everything Yahweh intended through his word, Yahshua understands. I'll say it that way. So we should follow in Yahshua's examples and apply the word as he applied the word. You know, it's incumbent upon all, all believers to not only obey, but, but also to rightly apply the word based on the spirit, based on the intent, based on the application, based on what Yahweh really wanted us to understand. And I think, you know, just as a side note, that's really where the Jews fell short, the scribes and Pharisees. Nobody could out-Pharisee a Pharisee. When it came to, uh, like, this rigid adherence to the word, Nobody could out-Pharisee a Pharisee. Nobody could do better than the Pharisee. But where they fell short is they missed the application. They missed what the intent was. You know, Scripture talks about in Matthew 23, 23, I believe it is, you know, it's talking about tithing. And he says, you know, you should be tithing. You should be doing this. But you shouldn't miss the way to your matters. They were doing what was right, but they were missing what was more important. And that, I think, is the difference between the mechanics of the word and understanding the spirit of the word. Do we simply go through the mechanics or do we understand the intent? You know, a lot of people simply go through the mechanics. I know assemblies like this. They go through the mechanics and they will scrutinize every little small minutia. But they miss these huge, huge things like loving your brother. Or you can watch for and investigate and and document every minutia of the word. And you can still miss the mark if we're not understanding the intent behind it. So I believe that's one way we achieve this this position, this understanding. Now, we also know that the word divides. We've talked a little bit about this today. I want to read what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Paul there says, "Be Be you not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord has Messiah with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel, with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of Elohim with idols? For you are the temple of the living Elohim. Notice that, by the way. I'm not going to really focus on that beyond this point, but we are the temple of Yahweh. We are Yahweh's temple. And think about how Yahweh scrutinized 
the temple in the Old Testament. Everything had to be just right. If there was any impurity within the temple, that impurity had to be removed, right? Absolutely nothing impure was allowed within the temple, including the priests. They had to be pure. They had to wash. So that's a lesson right there that as we are Yahweh's temple, that we should, we should reflect and realize what that means. It says, as Elohim has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their Elohim, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, it says, come out from among them, and be you separate, saith Yahweh, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says Yahweh Almighty. So Paul says here that we're not to be unequally yoked. Unequally yoked with unbelievers. To illustrate this point, he asks here, what concord has Messiah with Belial? What is Belial? Where Strong says Belial is a worthlessness. It's also an epithet for Satan the devil. So what this is really saying is, what does Yahshua and Satan the devil share in common? Well, that shouldn't be real hard. I mean, it's a real easy answer. They share nothing in common. They are diametrically opposed to one another. You don't understand that this same concept applies to us as believers. We're not to allow ourselves to be entwined with those who knowingly engage in sin. And I'm not talking about those we work with or, or maybe even friends who, who, uh, who aren't perfect, if you will. But if we have someone we know that are habitually uh, committing adultery or fornication or taking drugs or you know, we should abstain from those people. We should abstain from those people. We should separate ourselves from those people. Yeah, so we're to reject the leavening of sin and we're to partake of the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You know, for those who are faithful to the word, Paul provides a great promise here. He says that we will be sons and daughters of the Most High. Consider that for just a moment, the gravity of that statement alone, that we will be sons and daughters of the Most High. You know, there's not a greater promise. Everything in this life is minuscule. It doesn't, meaning it has no relevance at all when we compare and when we contrast and when we consider the promise that we find here, and that is the the promise of someday being a son and daughter of Yahweh. Everything else is inconsequential. But this is really the purpose of this feast, is to bring us out of sin and closer to the one we worship. To understand him better, to be in greater compliance to his word. You know, for a few moments, let's consider the first example. I talked a little bit about this in my last message, but I want to refresh and talk just a little bit about Egypt. Because this is where they were, and this is where they left during this feast. So what are some of the characteristics of Egypt? Or as we heard in the previous message, they were polytheistic. Scholars say that the Egyptians had somewhere around 2,000 deities or gods in their pantheon. Think about that, 2,000 deities that they worshipped. Of course, this is nothing compared to Hinduism or Buddhism. We also know that each one of the ten plagues was an attack on a different Egyptian deity. And we actually have a chart in the Restoration Study Bible showing this. In addition to the false worship, we also know that Egypt symbolized sin. Egypt symbolized sin and bondage. You know, think about how Israel suffered while in Egypt. They were given over to slavery and afflicted with some of the most grievous and inhumane punishment a person could suffer. Serving as slaves. They had no control of their personal lives. They had no control of what they thought or what they 
would do. This can be seen when Pharaoh brutally murdered the Israelite children. You know, just as Egypt represents bondage, this is also true of sin. And again, we're to remove sin during this feast. You know, it's amazing how many people who live in a perpetual state of sin, they honestly believe that they are free. This is one of the biggest lies I believe people believe. That they can live in this state of immorality, this state of sin, and believe that they are actually free. They are not free. You know, whether we, whether we realize it or not, when we live in a state of sin, we are a slave to sin. And there are consequences to that as well. Paul speaks about this. I want to turn to Romans. Romans 6, verse 16, it says, Know you not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey. So notice, he, he shows a contrast here. He says, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Well, you know, this message is real simple. When we obey, we're going to be blessed. But when we disobey and serve sin, we're going to be cursed. And that curse is going to lead to death. So again, these people who say that they are free to live in this state of immorality, they are deluded. They are deceived. The leavening would represent disobedience here. Unleavened bread would represent following Yahweh's word, obedience to his word. Again, for those who believe that they can live a life free from sin without consequences, they could not be more wrong. You know, as we see here, there is one reason for disobedience or one result for disobedience, and that is death. And again, Yahweh is not deceived. All sin eventually leads to death. And this is why it's important that we learn the lesson of leavening today. Why we understand leavening. And not just what it says, but listen, it's also important that we consider and we evaluate after this message, and we ask ourselves, all seven days of this feast, are there things I'm doing that is, that is offending the one I worship? Are there ways I can live better for the one I worship? We need to be asking that. You know, as Israel began their journey out of Egypt on the 15th day of Abib, today, this is, also an, this is also an opportunity for us to examine our lives and to remove the leavening that offends or may offend our Father in heaven. You know, as we saw in the previous passage, when we do this, we're going to be blessed. We're going to be adopted into Yahweh's family. We're going to be a son and daughter of his. But if we don't, we're not. And it's really that simple. What I'm going to close with, and something we find in Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. Deuteronomy 30, 15, and 318, it says, See, I have set before thee this day life and good and death and evil. And then I command thee this day to love Yahweh the Elohim. How do we love Yahweh? How do we love Yahweh? We keep his commandments. You know, some people just say, I love Yahweh, or I love the one I worship. But I don't have to do anything. I don't have to obey him. Well, they don't really love him. We know that from scripture. That those who say they love Yahweh and disobey, they don't really love him. So that's how we love Yahweh. To walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that thou mayest live and multiply in Yahweh the Elohim shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. But if thine heart turn away so that thou wilt not hear but shall be drawn away and worship other mighty ones and serve them I denounce unto you this day that you shall surely perish. Let's see, I guess that is it. So you shall surely perish. I thought I had another slide there. 
It's kind of a positive note, right? You shall surely perish. We see here, though, that Yahweh gave Israel a choice. Yahweh gave Israel a choice. He said that you can either live for me and you can, you can experience life and blessings, or you can disobey and end up with death and evil. You know, what was required from them to find life or blessings? Where they were, again, to keep the commandments. They were to obey him. You know, those who uh, obeyed, he promised, again, blessings, but those who disobeyed, he promised judgment. You know, as believers, again, this really goes back to this concept of what leavening and what unleavened bread symbolizes. We're to remove the leavening, we're to remove the sin, we're to remove the hypocrisy, we're to remove the duplicity, we're to remove the false beliefs. In essence, and in short, we're to remove anything that offends the one we worship. And we're then to take in the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And I, I would encourage everybody during these next seven days, I would encourage everybody to consider, to contemplate, to meditate, if you will, on those areas of our lives where we can improve. And I can guarantee you, I guarantee you, that there is something we're doing that is offending the one we worship. Now, hopefully not, not much, but I guarantee you that there's things we can do better. I guarantee you that there's improvements we can make. I guarantee you that there's small adjustments we can make. And Yahweh is going to be pleased that much more with us. And that's what this feast was all about, to contemplate how we can improve the relationship we have with the one we worship. That's why we remove the leavening and why we eat unleavened bread, to remove that which offends and to understand the sincerity, the holiness of Yahweh's word. Well, I pray that this has been a blessing to you. I would hope that we would take some time during this week to, again, consider, to analyze, to review, to evaluate our lives and ask, am I living as I should for the one I worship? Because he wants, listen, Yahweh wants to see us all saved. He wants to give us, he, he, he really desires to give us good things, blessings beyond measure. But we must do our part. It's a conditional promise. If we do our part, we're going to be sons and daughters. And there's not a greater promise. May Yahweh bless you.